0: The crimes, the criminals. Why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's crime scene. Welcome to the crime scene. I am Jim Harold. So glad to be back with you once again. And I think we have a fascinating discussion. I know we're going to have a fascinating discussion. We're talking about a new book out. It's called All the Blood We Share, and it's a novel but is based on the real bloody benders, a family of serial killers in the Old West. And our guest today is the author Camilla Bruce. She is a Norwegian writer of speculative and historical fiction. She has a master's degree in comparative literature and has co-run a small press that publishes dark fairy tales. Sounds good to me. She Currently lives in Trondheim with her son and cat. And you can learn more about her and all of her books because she has quite a few out. Very successful. CamillaBruce.com. Camilla Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So uh, as we were talking offline, typically on this program, we talk about real life cases. We don't do a lot of novels, but I think it's interesting uh, what you've done here on two different fronts. First of all, you base this on a real case. So I'm interested to learn more about that real case and then how you kind of took that and made it a compelling narrative such as it is in terms of a novel. So I guess we'll start with uh, the Bloody Benders. Uh, Who were they and why did you get interested in them?
1: Well, the Bloody Benders, they were a family uh, who lived in Kansas in the 1870s, early 1870s. And there was uh, sort of uh, a couple of older people, uh, Ma and Pa Bender, <laughs> and uh, uh, two younger people, John and Kate. And they came to uh, and came to Kansas and settled outside Cherryway, where they ra- uh, ran a roadside inn. But it was not in like we think of inns today. It was more of a Makeshift situation where people who traveled the West could pay for a meal and maybe a little bit of floor space to spend the night. And uh, they were known to be a little bit strange, except for Kate. none of them spoke much English. They were of German descent. And uh, uh, John, the son in the family, he was known to be a little weird. He was laughing inappropriately and came into a lot of uh, situation with the locals. While Kate was the one who spoke English and she was uh, very outgoing and was trying to make a name for herself as a psychic because this was all the rage at the time with the spiritualism being what it was then after the Civil War. And um, while they were there operating this inn, people who traveled the road had started disappearing. Uh-huh. And these were mostly strangers to Cherry Whale, so people didn't really know, them. They maybe didn't even know they were there at all. But slowly and surely it became clear that people were disappearing and they even found some bodies, one in a river and a couple left on the prairie. And uh, there were... Meetings and talk, but nothing much was done about it before a doctor disappeared because, you know, he had standing and people knew where he was. And, um, he also had a brother who was a colonel. So that was very unfortunate for the vendors because he started a big hunt for his brother trying to figure out where he had gotten lost. Then there was another town meeting where they decided that all the farms in the area, uh, were to be searched. And uh, suddenly the benders disappeared. They were just gone one day. They found their wagon, but they did not find the people. And uh, when they searched the property where they had stayed, they found 10 bodies buried oh outside my. their house. So they had chosen um travelers that they thought had money and uh, disposed of them while they were staying at the Benders.
0: Kind of reminds me a little bit of an H. Holmes of the Old West. Although it was a family. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's what makes it so, so special, you know, because it was this very unassuming cabin out on the prairie and there was nothing suspicious about it on the surface. Uh, but uh, yeah, they had quite the setup in there. They would... Uh, while the guest was eating or relaxing, uh, one of the benders would come up behind them and hit them in the head with a hammer through a, a curtain who hung in the room. And then they would be tipped back into a small cellar that had been dug out in the floor where they would be finally killed with a knife. So they had like this, it was a little bit like H.H. H. Holmes in that there was a, a system to it. And a trapdoor.
0: How charming. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, why? uh, I mean, was it that, that it was so unusual? What uh, specifically attracted you to them as the basis for this story?
1: Well, I had written one novel before based on a true story about Belganes. She was a Norwegian immigrant, so that's why I was attracted to her. And while researching that story, uh, she also had this in, you know, or who she was, (laughs) she had guests that disappeared. But there were so many other things that were different. And I think that was what attracted me to the story in the beginning because Belle, who I had worked with previously, she was a lone killer. She did most of her business alone. Uh, Well, this was a whole family. And I think to me as the novelist, that was very interesting because how do four people under the same roof in such a small cabin react to what they are doing? How are the dynamics within the family? How are they? What do they talk about over dinner? How do they decide on the victims? Is there a leader? Do they do this as a democracy? How does this work? And how did it happen? How did this evolve?
0: And it does seem to me that writing, uh, making this a novel is a very sensible way to go because it would be very hard To do kind of a psychological profile or anything like that, because all you probably have are some news accounts and so forth of the time and maybe some writings that have been done and and articles and so forth. But it's not like you have audio tape. It's not like you have videotape. You don't really have much to go on in terms of figuring out their internal motivations and those kind of things, why they did it, how they interplayed with each other, as you said. To me, it would seem like it would be something calling out for a novelization of it.
1: Yeah, and maybe especially because we don't really know a lot about them. There are a lot of theories and a lot of rumors, but we don't have many solid facts about the Benders. It was sort of like, and that was one thing that attracted me to the story as well, because it was almost like the, something out of Grimm's fairy tales, you know. They came in this rickety wagon one night. They set up house. They were there for a very short time, just two and a half years, and then they left and they left all these bodies, all these bodies behind. So to me, it was like they had this mystery, and I wanted to try to make my own version of who they really were. Especially since we don't really know much. We don't really know that Ma and Pa Bender was the parents of the younger benders. We don't know if the younger benders were married to each other or if they were step-siblings or even whole siblings. So there's a lot of questions, and we don't know where they came from or, as it turned out, where they went. There was a huge manhunt for them after their crimes came for a day, but I never found them. So it's there's a lot of questions, and, you know, I, I was attracted to the mystery of it and all those white spaces in their story.
0: Now, the thing that is interesting to me, whether you look at this case, you look at H. H. Holmes, or there, there's cases throughout history, and I think there's this sense that uh, serial killers really came into being in the 20th century, but uh, apparently there were some very bad actors before then. Did you think that's interesting? Do you think that's true, that most people think that uh, serial killers started in the 20th century and uh, maybe maybe in your own investigation you found that the good old days maybe weren't always so good?
1: It was definitely not very good. <laughs> it was a very violent time and especially in the U.S. with all the immigrants coming, looking for fortune, there was a lot of room for bad players back then. And I think it's a little bit surprising that we think that serial killers is such a 20th century phenomenon because, um, uh, the press was all over it back then too. And people came to get souvenirs from the murder houses. And, and in the Bender case, they actually picked the house apart because they wanted a board from the house. So they want to see where it happened. So it's really the same thing. It was just as exciting to people back then as it is now. Which I think is a very human thing. You are, we are very attracted to things that are are abnormal. So, uh, killing other people on a sort of a in a in a serial way is very abnormal. And I think that has always been fascinating to people. But yeah, there were some really really bad actors back then too.
0: With the Bloody Benders, do you believe that it was strictly a, a profit motive, or do you think that there was? Some enjoyment of the crime along with it. Do you think it was a bloodlust, or you think it was just simply a money lust?
1: At the very least, they would have been, been in a frame of mind where they didn't mind killing. I think it. Did, I don't think that it bothered them in any way. And I also think that it has a little bit to do with, with how people were back then because they didn't have much. And it was always a fight for resources and a fight to make it. And I think people of the, especially of you know those who didn't already have money, poor people. I think that it was pretty much a, um, I think their uh, empathy had to be blunted in order to survive. And I think that went for all people, but in some rare cases, it also meant that they didn't mind killing someone to get what they needed to live.
0: Mm-hmm. I can understand it being kind of a dog-eat-dog world, but murder is kind of where I would I think, I hope, I would have drawn the line. That uh, that really is, um, you know, disturbing. But I, I mean, when you put it in that context, you obviously may not agree with it, but I guess you can understand it a little bit more. Still just horrible things because there's so many people that, Lived back then and survived and weren't going around killing people. But uh, (laughs) – and the Old West. What did you learn about the Old West? I mean we all – whether it's in the States or internationally because uh, the Western – maybe not as much these days but traditionally was so popular, whether books, movies, television, whatever it might be. What did you learn about the Old West that maybe surprised you or was outside of those stereotypes uh, in doing the research for this book?
1: Yeah, I came over this amazing resource. It's a book called uh, Pioneer Women, Voices from the Kansas Frontier. And uh, that was actually firsthand accounts from women who had lived on the Kansas prairie in the 19th century. And it was collected by a woman who meant to to make a collection of it. And then it was left in a attic for years before it was finally published by her granddaughter. And uh, I really found it fascinating to go in and see how the day-to-day life was and how hard it was. Uh, especially for, uh, when you think about Kansas and the prairie, you know, they didn't have a lot of trees. So some people lived in, in houses they had dug out in the dirt. So they lived in, in caves, basically, with a roof. And they had problems with snakes falling down from the roof and through the ceiling, you know? And that was really fascinating to me that it was so bad that people lived under such horrible conditions because when you think of the West, you always imagine this log cabin with the wide porch and, and everything. But some people really had it pretty bad. And also with the violence uh, thing, um, there was one story I read in that book that really stuck with me. And that was how they hung horse thieves. And the kids, when they were going to school, they would sort of go up to the corpse and, and push it a little to, to make it swing back and forth. So that was like their entertainment that maybe they oh. dared each other to do it. So So death was there all the time in a way that I hadn't actually understood before. It was a very violent time.
0: It's interesting because, you know, in our society, in Western society of the current day, we've kind of sanitized death. And then I I, I can't speak to Europe as well, but I can speak to the United States. It's kind of like you tend not to see dead people. The only time you really ever, unless you have a close loved one who's passed and they're in a hospital or hospice or something and you're there bedside. Other than that, you typically don't see dead people. They're not a part of life as they were back in the day, you know, back in the day, uh, people used to be, quote, laid out in their homes, not funeral parlors. And uh, even more so now with not saying anything negative against it, but with cremation, somebody can live and die and um, their family won't ever see the dead body. They'll see an urn and a picture. So, I mean, we've really um, kind of sanitized things where You know, they whisk the body away right away. They cover the body. So, you know, uh, somebody could ostensibly go years without seeing a dead body. Uh, Not that we want dead bodies floating around all over, but it's really kind of a a change from what these people experienced because death was up front. It was up close and personal, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. And with the high child mortality rate as well, there was always, you know, a sister or a brother or child who died and you had to usually wash the body yourself and and take care of it and lay it out at home and uh, yeah it's the same way in Europe we don't even have open caskets so we don't see dead bodies unless it's a very close family member but back then it would be more of a everyday thing and maybe not as mysterious to them as it is to us, I think maybe to, depending on the circumstances, but if you see a lot of dead bodies in life, I think that you, you stop maybe thinking of them as, as uh, people, maybe in the same way that we did. They are more like objects, I think, if you're exposed to a lot of them. So I think that could also explain some of the, the benders callousness in that they killed their, their guests.
0: Wow. When you think about death uh, back in the day with the advent of photography in the States, it was a big thing for death photography. And they would dress the corpse up and take a formal photo of them. Photographer would come. People didn't have cameras, obviously, in the very early days, poor people, and they weren't mass produced necessarily. So, um, photographer would come and take a photo of the corpse, and many times it would be the only photograph they would have of the person. And it's just really dramatic when you you see those. Well, we are talking with Camilla Bruce. We're talking about her new novel, All the Blood We Share, a novel of the bloody benders of Kansas. And we'll be back right after this. (music) Thanks for listening to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're so glad to be back. Please make sure to follow the show in the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. Also, please share the show with your friends who are fascinated by true crime the way we are. Maybe even text them a link to this episode. Finally, be sure to rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for your help and for listening. Be careful out there. And now back to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're back on the crime scene. Our guest is Camilla Bruce. The book is All the Blood We Share, a novel of the bloody benders of Kansas. And we're so glad to have her with us today. And in the first segment, we talked a lot about the historic background of the bloody benders, who they were, what they did, and possibly why they did it. So Camilla, you've got this uh, very kind of rich, terrifying history how do you go about turning that into a novel with kind of living, breathing characters?
1: Well, I think there are different ways of doing this. A lot of author will choose to sort of approach the story from a different angle than I do with the writing about uh, some fictional characters that comes into contact with the murderers in this case. But I'm more of like, I like to go straight ahead, right in and just, uh, Look at the main characters themselves. So for me, it was like first look at them and what we do we know? Uh, What do we maybe know? Because there was a lot of rumors after the vendors and uh, then decide who I thought they were and how they were operating in relations to each other. And then I had to take these new characters I had made and fit them in a pattern that corresponded with the actual fact. When did people die? When did they vanish? When did a manhunt start? So that my characters could follow that line of facts. And the most interesting thing to me was, of course, the building of the characters. Because, as I said, we know very little about them and there are no pictures. So I just had to... It was like a scavenging hunt, really, to go out and find different facts or what I chose to use this was actually much easier with my first novel because we didn't know a lot about that serial killer but the vendors are more far more mysterious but to me that was actually a fun challenge to try to find facts and then to piece them together
0: yeah that's interesting so did you tend to stay with the the little factoids that you would find if somebody had a certain personality Or how far did you depart depending on how it would work within the story? Which is kind of nice because that gives you the license to do some things like that and have some creative license. How far did you, in terms of the the character of the people, the personality that you were able to glean from your research, if there was any, how much did you change things around?
1: I didn't really change much of the facts, but there are a lot of, popular stories about the benders, you know, some near misses, people who said they had stayed there and they had been chased in the night and, you know, and some things that we cannot prove actually happened that didn't actually fit with my narrative. So then I just chose to discard that. So it's really nice with the novel format that you can also just discard things that doesn't quite fit your arc. But I try as much as possible to stay true to what is proven or what is likely to have happened because i don't want the story to be unrecognizable for someone who knows it i want it to be the real story only my version of the real story
0: now um can you introduce us to the cast of characters as they are in the novel i don't want to give away too much in terms of the happenings, but could you tell us the main characters and a little bit about each of them, if you would?
1: Yeah, there's Ma Bender, and in my novel, I have called her Elvira because that's a name she's sometimes called, but we don't actually know her name. Some say it's Kate Senior, but I chose to stick with Elvira. And that was actually because there was another woman called Elmira who was mistakenly arrested as Elvira after they had disappeared. And uh, she was known to be very religious, and she was uh, didn't speak English very well, so she was more of a passive character when people came to visit the vendors. She's sitting in a rocking chair, knitting or singing. Um, but in my novel, I have given her more of a. Personality, because I thought it was really sad with a woman just sitting in a rocking chair doing nothing. So she is uh, definitely a force to be reckoned with in the novel. And then there's her husband, and he was also known to be, you know, this family they were reputed spiritualists. So I have enhanced that aspect of him, so that he he is definitely a a believer in my novel. And he was also known to have quite a temper. This is the old man bender. And then there was John, of course, who is a tricky character, a little bit difficult. And he once we don't know if he was Kate's husband or brother or stepbrother, but we do know with some certainty that she he came in he ended up in a fight over her honour at one point. So we did definitely have some stakes in Kate. And um I think he is the type of man who has a lot of rage that he doesn't express. So then, when it is expressed, it becomes very explosive. And then, of course, there's Kate, who is often called the mastermind of the benders. And I haven't really found any proof of why that is, other than the fact that she was very outgoing and she knew the language and she spoke for the benders often in the community. And also that she gave uh, spiritualist talks. That's to say that she channeled spirits who talked through her, and she also found lost dreams and a little and things like that. So she had this kind of witchy reputation, and I have definitely used that in the book because uh, in, I think she was a strong-willed and uh, ambitious young woman, and I have used that in the book.
0: Now, let me ask you about that. Is Do you think that part of that could be, you know, and, and not saying that she was great because she was involved in this. So obviously uh, not not a good character. But do you think that being a woman that she might be tend to be at that day and age been vilified more the evil woman who caused all of these problems? Do you think that's part of it, too?
1: Yes. And also, especially because she gave those spiritualist talks, because, uh, women weren't supposed to, to talk in public back then. It was seen as immoral for them to, to voice anything. But when you are a, a spirit, a medium, you could just uh, channel a man and then you could speak in public and speak your mind, you know, and that was also seen as immoral. So she definitely had a lot of, she was, uh, she became quite digestible after they found out what had happened at the Bender Inn. and uh, she was also said to have used her her feminine wiles or her sexuality to to lure men into their their inn, so she was definitely uh exposed to that, yes.
0: Now, uh, here's something I like to ask novelists. We don't do a lot of novelist interviews, but occasionally I will. And this is something that's always fascinated me because I've heard a particular answer to this from numerous authors. But I'll be interested in your perspective on it. Do the characters in a fictional novel have a mind of their own? In other words, you set out to begin the the story arc if you outline – uh, I don't know how you work but however as you think okay this character is going to take this path and they're going to do this that and the other thing you kind of have that in your mind as you're actually wording, writing the words on the page and then all of a sudden you sit down to write the words and the words come out differently almost like the character says no I'm not going to make a left I'm going to make a right do you find that to be the case
1: Yes actually I do It doesn't have to happen all the time but when you're really invested in a character and you have worked with it for a while they start to make their own decisions and they also sort of just tell you it nudge you in a direction they tell you this is what i would have done and it's sort of like yeah i would absolutely say a life of their own yes and a mind of their own so you can see connections that you didn't before or they could be like just a flash of inspiration and suddenly you're off in a completely different direction than you thought you were headed
0: Yeah, I've always found that really interesting, and I wonder what's at at play there. So uh, when you take a look at the uh, Bloody Benders, do you think there's a lesson for us, or is it just an unfortunate tale of some deeds gone wrong? Is there something we can learn, even looking back all of these these years uh, into the age of the Old West? Is there something we can learn from the Bloody Benders?
1: I think the most obvious answer, of course, is that don't shack up with strangers without checking their rating online first, mm-hmm. knowing who they are. Uh, but I also think there's something to say about as a society, take care of people because I think I've looked at a lot of cases and often when it's money, that's the object. Those situations could have been avoided if people had been taken care of, if they had other options, if they were social security net for them, you know, so they wouldn't be so poor and they wouldn't be so needy. So there's something to say about that. I think that it it ruins people over time to always want and always be desperate. Not saying that everyone turns out to be serial killers, but I think there's something to say about that. Misery breeds misery.
0: Well... I certainly hope that everybody picks up all the blood. We share a novel of the bloody benders of Kansas. And I applaud you for what you've done, because I think it's a challenge when you're looking back so far to do something. It's easy to pick something, you know, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, the 2000s. It's Easy to do the latest Dahmer book. Maybe not easy, but easier. I think what you've taken on here is a real challenge and a worthy thing to do, and a fascinating tale that brings kind of this uh, treachery of the Old West to light. Camilla, where can people find this book and all the other books that you do?
1: They should be available everywhere. Books are available. And my website is a good place to start because I have. The Yeah, you can go from there.
0: Very good. Our guest has been Camilla Bruce. The book is all the blood we share, a novel of the bloody benders of Kansas. Camilla, thank you for joining us today. I certainly appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thank you for tuning in to the crime scene. We appreciate it. And we will talk to you next time. And as always, be careful out there. Bye bye, everybody.